It's, uh, it's very hard to believe uh, it's been 10 years. I haven't aged a bit. Um, my name, in case you're new to Socrates in the city, my name is Eric Metaxas, as seen on Glenn Beck. Oh. I can't imagine that uh, many of you actually got to see that show. I assume you were fighting your way over here um, in traffic. But uh, we are very glad to have so many of you here. It's really actually rather moving uh, to see so many of you here at the Roosevelt Hotel. I assume you understand that I wouldn't have picked a hotel named after FDR. It's Theodore Roosevelt. <laughs> I assume you know that about me. Yeah. Not that Theodore was ex exactly a Reagan conservative, but we're going to let it go. Um, it is a joy to see you here tonight. This is a very exciting moment for us at Socrates uh, in the city. And to see this room filled uh, with so many dear friends uh, and acquaintances and Facebook friends, uh, it really is a joy for me. I don't know how many of you uh, are here tonight. People always ask me how many people were there. So just do me a favor. If you're here tonight, would you raise your hand just so I can get a quick... It's about 8%. All right. We can do better. Um, well, uh, there's so much uh, to say, I will try not to say uh, too much. The programs you have in front of you uh, will pretty much say it all, okay? These are very expensive uh, programs, so I ask you, we, these are actually, um, these are rentals. Uh, we need to get them back at the end of the evening, so if you don't want, please don't get any food on that, because uh, we do need to get them... Uh, back. But these, these programs were designed by my dear friend in the front row, Ed Tuttle. He's, uh, he's here. Yes, he's here. The man who designed these gorgeous things. So if you have any graphic design needs, see me and I'll point you in the direction of Ed Tuttle. But these were done um, on relatively short notice. And I have to say, looking at them, it's very moving to see the history. Uh, obviously, if you've looked at them, you can see that they give you a history of Socrates in the city. And to think that we've been doing this for 10 years, uh, all you have to do is look down the list of the names. In fact, if somebody can give me a program. Barnaby, can I have your Yes, here it is, the program. Um, Socrates in the City, as most of you know, started with an idea. Uh, the idea was that the unexamined life is not worth living. I didn't come up with that. That was... Uh, Socrates, who came up with that 25 centuries ago. And uh, he didn't come up with those words because he didn't speak English, because English hadn't been invented for another 15 centuries, actually even more. But that idea uh, was what we started with 10 years ago. We thought that New York is a kind of a place that could do with some civil conversation. Uh, it could do with people asking the big questions in a civil environment, uh, and we have asked the big questions, but we rarely have a civil environment. And I apologize in advance for the, for the kind of circus this is going to be tonight. Um, I joke, but the fact is that there's nothing more important than asking these big questions. New York is not a place uh, famous for thinking deeply about the big questions. We're a city of money and power. Um, so we thought that it was valuable 10 years ago to try 
to do something to encourage people to think more deeply uh, and not just to hear a speaker, but then to buy the books uh, that the speaker has written. Uh, They laugh. Joe, they laugh. How do you feel about that? You've written some of these books, Joe. Um, But in all seriousness, you, you walk away from here and not only have you heard something, but You've been introduced to somebody who thinks more deeply about this, and we've encouraged people to read those books and to continue uh, that that conversation because we believe that there is such a thing as the truth, uh, and we believe that it's worth hunting for the truth, and it's wor- worth uh, goading each other to search for the truth and search for answers to the big questions. So we've been doing that low uh, these 10 years. Uh, we've had all kinds of speakers. When you look through the program um, you'll notice on the first page, for example, that we've had, you probably didn't know this, but you know the Alu brothers? We've, we've had the three Guinness brothers. Do you see that? Chico, uh, I believe that's Harpo in the middle and Groucho on the right. No, it, it's, uh, you know, when I think of how this started, there are a number of people who were fundamental, foundational to this being able uh, to happen. One of them for sure um, was Oz Guinness. Uh, Oz Guinness pretty much was our first seven speakers, I think. Um, we, couldn't, uh, we couldn't lure Chuck Colson for many years, you understand, so I had to go and bother uh, Oz Guinness. But Oz Guinness, because he believed in this idea and because he is a real friend, he came and he spoke time and time again. And without that, I don't think we would have been able um, to get started. So Oz is not here, but the man in the Santa suit is the son of Oz Guinness. That's C.J. Guinness. Stand up, C.J. No lie. No lie. But, uh, but that really is true. We owe a lot to, uh, to Oz Guinness, and I want to publicly uh, acknowledge that right now. Um, the way this started originally is a very dear friend of mine, Bruce Halstead. Raise your hand, Bruce. Raise your hand. Come on. You could stand, too. Bruce Halstead asked me if I wanted to start a, a, a Seekers Bible study in New York City. And my wife and I moved to New York City. Our daughter was just born in 99. He said, would you like to start a Seekers Bible study? And out of that, we, we began to think more deeply about what would be what would be something that hadn't been done? And it was in a conversation with Oz Guinness that we came upon this idea. But it's because of Bruce's support uh, for the first year and a half that we were able to start Socrates in the City. So I want to thank you publicly, Bruce Halstead. Thank you. And, and now do you know you're here? Why are you here? You can go home now. Um, and it wasn't just Bruce, but it was Priority Associates and Campus Crusade for Christ. They, they made it possible uh, for us uh, to do what we've been doing here. Um, There's so many stories, we're not going to have time to, to share them. We've had... Um, I've heard so many comments over the last uh, 10 years, I could never begin uh, to recount half of them. I've heard so many comments about people who've come to Socrates' events and what it's meant to them, people that they've met. There's a method to our madness. A lot of this has to do with community. You bring people together and things happen. You meet other uh, interesting people, assuming you're interesting. Um, And things come out of that. There's been a lot of uh, intellectual ferment, uh, a lot of social ferment, but we've heard many, many wonderful anecdotes and stories and comments 
We've never uh, taken the trouble to get any of this in writing, um, but we have finally uh, produced on our website, if you go to our website today, there's a button on the right-hand side that says uh, share, share your stories, not C-H-E-R, but S-H-A-R, although she will be here, um, or, or a drag queen look-alike, very shortly, because we paid her, um, him. Uh, but, yeah. Um, but the fact of the matter is, I would like to encourage you all, first of all, to please go to the Socrates in the City website, and if you have any comment uh, that you'd like to make or a story you'd like to share, I have just heard so many little stories over the years of what this has meant to people or it's led to this or led to this. Um, please uh, take the trouble uh, to go there as, as a sort of a 10th year anniversary gift to Socrates in the City. Go on the website and just make a comment, even if it's just a sentence, but we would love to hear from you. We've never done that before and it's very, very important to us um, to get that. It would be very important to me. Um, two stories that I can share with you of, of things that have happened at Socrates in the city, which means something to me. We had, um, I don't know when it was, I have to look in this program here to remember what year it was. Um, let's see. It was May 2003. We had Dr. Armand Nikolai of Harvard uh, speak. Um, he wrote a book comparing the worldviews of Sigmund Freud and C.S. Lewis. Uh, called The Question of God. It was developed into some PBS series or something, but it was really just, it is, a spectacular book. Uh, at that event in May of 2003, there was a writer sitting in the audience, invited by my dear friend Mark Berner, who has served on the board of Socrates. He invited this writer to come and to hear Armand Nikolai. Well, that writer was so intrigued that he went away from that Socrates in the City event. I don't think he ever came back to another Socrates in the City event, but what he did... What, well, I don't think he lives in New York, so don't snicker. But, um, but what he did was he decided that this is such a compelling idea that he would write a play about it. And he wrote a play about it, and it is currently playing to packed audiences right here in Manhattan on West 64th Street. It is called Freud's Last Session. And that play, which has gotten fantastic reviews in the New York Times, if you can believe it, and other places, that owes its provenance to Socrates in the city. So things like that have been happening. Obviously, that's just, that's just one story that I know of. Uh, there, there's another one. Uh, a number of years ago, we had my dear friend Norman Stone, uh, who is the, he was the, he is a film director, and he directed the first Shadowlands for the BBC with Claire Bloom and Joss Ackland in 1985. Uh, we had Norman Stone come uh, when he uh, premiered a C.S. Lewis documentary that he made. This is about, I think, five years ago. Uh, and a couple of years after that, I found out about a book. Some of you were at that uh, evening a gentleman named Michael Ward, an Oxford Don, made this great literary discovery. He discovered the sort of hidden secret code behind the Narnia Chronicles. Um, I just realized no one's prayed for the food. I'm going to tell you the Narnia story after I pray for the food. You're welcome. Heavenly Father, forgive me for allowing these people to eat unto their own destruction. <laughs> Lord God, we thank you for this very, very happy event and for this wonderful group of friends in this wonderful room. We thank you for this food 
And we thank you for the way you sustain us, Lord, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, and through these friendships. We ask your blessing on these friendships, on this community that we call Socrates in the city. We ask you to be with us and guide us. And we thank you for this food and this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Bon appétit. Um, should, I, should I continue? I don't know. Maybe everybody should eat their food and I'll continue afterward. I think I just made an executive decision with my staff, and I think I'm going to let you uh, eat your food, and we'll continue this program a little bit later. God bless you. If you are a patron of Socrates in the City and you have given us money, funds over the years, I want you to know that even when you don't come to an event, there are amazing events that happen about once a month. And I know that many of you have experienced some of them. Almost none of you, none of you has experienced all of them. I think I'm the only person alive who's experienced all the Socrates events. But we have had such wonderful events. And for you uh, to give... Uh, I know there are many good things um, to give to, but for you to give to Socrates in the city means more to me than I can tell you. This genuinely is not happening without you. Think about that for a minute. It's not happening without you. So I want to thank you very much, and I specifically want to thank the Templeton Foundation, which has given extremely generously to us over the last three years. I won't single out the board members, but they're at this table, the, the Gravitas table down here. And I want to say thank you, Templeton Foundation, and thank you all patrons of Socrates in the City. Um, I want to now introduce Chuck Colson. Uh, but before I introduce Chuck, if you happen to talk to Chuck, whatever you do, do not bring up that whole Watergate thing. He's very uncomfortable. <laughs> he doesn't like to talk about it, okay? What's done is done, all right? The important thing is that they got the president reelected, okay? <laughs> all right, they got him reelected, and you can never take that away from them. They got it done. Don't bring up Watergate, uh, please. Uh, also, um, try not to bring up the whole prison thing. Uh, since that happens a long time ago, Chuck has never spoken of it again. Uh, again, he's uncomfortable with it. Uh, he just doesn't like to talk about it, and he doesn't like you to talk about it. So please, don't, don't bring up the fact that he's a felon. that he did time in the can, the big house, the jug. Don't bring it up. And don't use any of that prison slang, that lingo, you know, shiv, screws, or anything like that. Just, just don't do that. What's done is done. It's the past, okay? We're going to move on now. We're going to talk about the Manhattan Declaration and ethics. All right. I think most of you who are in this room already know who Chuck Colson is uh, and how God has used him to accomplish um, great things. So I will spare you, and more importantly, I'll spare Chuck the long, uh, embarrassing introduction uh, in some ways. I will spare him the embarrassing introduction. Um, I want to tell you uh, just very briefly, to me, 
uh, who Chuck Colson is. Uh, and the short version of that is that he's, he's a hero. He's my hero. Uh, he's a man who has stood up heroically uh, in a culture when it is very easy not to do that. Uh, people of faith aren't always heroes. Chuck has been a hero. Um, most specifically, uh, recently, in putting forward this Manhattan Declaration, which, again, I abjure you uh, to look up, to go online and to look it up, uh, manhattandeclaration.org. Uh, he has done something with, uh, with Timothy George and Robbie George, which is extremely important and which is, which is extremely brave. Uh, I won't give you the details again because we don't have time, but you need to know that it, it is, it's important, and it's important to stand up and to say what you believe in. And if you disagree with it, it's important you, for you to respect the rights in America for people to say things with which you might disagree. And when people try to shut down dialogue, I don't know about you, I call that fascism. Uh, I wrote a book about somebody who stood up against fascism. Uh, I think that if you're an American, if you're a person of faith, you need to stand up against fascism and you need to stand up for the idea that all of us need to be able to express ourselves in a civil way. I said at the beginning of this that that's what Socrates in the City is all about. We've got to preserve that right. That is at the very core of this noble, fragile experiment called the United States of America. We're going to have to fight for that uh, because it's the sort of thing you always have to fight for those kinds of things. But I think we've lived for such a long time uh, in such a wonderful bubble, we've been able to take it for granted. And I think that we have to understand that these are things, these are very, very fragile things that need to be preserved and fought for. And I want to thank God for Chuck Colson, who's done that heroically. Um, very recently, um, Chuck has uh, put together something. You've got it on your tables here. It's a six-part series on ethics. Uh, it's genuinely spectacular. Uh, there is one set for, uh, for each table, and uh, later on we're going to have sort of a raffle, and, and one of you will get to keep it. I think those of you who are patrons of Socrates and City, you get it in your gift basket. But this is a very sort of expensive uh, item. Um, it's, it's an exciting thing. It hasn't been premiered yet. People barely know about it yet. And so tonight, Chuck is going to talk about this because, uh, well, he'll tell you why uh, this is important. Uh, after Chuck speaks, uh, we're going to have a celebrity Q&A with celebrities. If you're a celebrity, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tap you, except for Cal Thomas. He gets a pass. Um, but I'm going to bother my friends uh, to, to ask a question. So, so be thinking of, uh, of questions you'd like to ask while Chuck is talking, and then I'll approach you with the microphone uh, afterward. Um, are we ready with the... Uh, we've got a, a short trailer, and then Chuck will come up and talk. Are we ready with the trailer? A, a simple yes or no will... I think that's a yes. Thank you. Well, I don't think anyone can deny that we have a problem here. We're in an ethical mess. I started working in the prisons 35 years ago. There were 229,000 people in prison. Today, there's 2.3 million. 
The financial crisis has rocked the world and shaken markets worldwide. Lenders were encouraged by the government to lend to less creditworthy buyers. Almost everyone in a position of financial authority embraced it. At the same time they sold them short and hammered them like mad, raked in money. At every level they were deceiving the people they were dealing with. Well, Wall Street not only saw no evil, but saw a great deal of virtue, which could be quantified in billions of dollars. That was the virtue of it. Why are we surprised when there's a lack of ethics in the lenders, Wall Street, government? It's an inescapable consequence of neglecting moral training. One of the things we need to do is resensitize ourselves to evil and resensitize ourselves to good. That was a time when I should have stopped and said, wait a minute, Mr. President, think about the consequences of this. But I did not. Self-righteousness is believing you're so good that you couldn't be compromised. And that's the kind of pride that's fatal. Business schools need to start thinking about right and wrong and ethics. But that's a very difficult challenge if the professors don't know how to teach it or think that way. Students simply were not aware of questions of moral philosophy. They said, well, ethics is following your own integrity or following your conscience. But what if you have a poorly formed conscience? What if you're a jerk? The problem is, in Harvard Business School, there's no fundamental agreement on the way the world works. And so you're reduced to discussing practical behavior. So truth has got to be knowable for there to be ethics. It would be hard to live a life as a consistent moral relativist, not making any kinds of moral claims. If you're a purely accepted moral relativist position, then you have no ground on which to stand to say why another person is wrong. The sure consequence of the attempt to liberate oneself from demanding moral norms and obligations is slavery. It's resulting in more harm to the society in general than anything else in my lifetime. It is unutterably destructive. How's that working for you? Eugenics is very much alive and well. It's back. And we now face the question, are we going to buy it or not buy it? A proper understanding of who the human person is. If we lose that and we are losing that, it becomes very, very dangerous. Quadriplegics like me have never fared well in societies that view life as dispensable. People are created equal endowed by their created with certain equal rights. This is the fundamental ethic on which the Western civilization was built. You don't give human rights to people and you can't take them away. Uh, human rights are God-given. Central power, like all power, has to be checked. It has to be limited. Government must be under the moral law. And if the government violates those rights, it should be changed. My uncle did write and did say, if a law is unjust, it is our moral responsibility to resist the unjust law. And that is the basis of the civil rights movement. case of Tycho and innumerable other recent cases, it all went terribly wrong. Things uh, were pretty badly broken inside the company. When you lose a sense of trust, market economies fail. The dream is, if I can just achieve this much more, I'll fill that emptiness. The thing with money is it doesn't make you happy. Doing the right things, that's what makes you happy. We made a decision that we thought was going to cost us money. I don't think it's cost us a dime by being a good 
corporate responsible citizen. But the market also both requires and nurtures the virtue of service, hard work, and discipline, and diligence. It's got to begin in homes, and churches, and schools. At every level, we have to be working together to rebuild a consensus around a sound and coherent ethic. The family, religion, you know, culture, this is what has to be transformed. Our recognition of duty to do what's right, even in the face of powerful temptations and incentives to do what's wrong. That is the great goal of life. Am I doing what's right for other people who, like me, are made in the image and likeness of God? Thank you very much. Well, I must say, I uh, dread going to dinners. I've been to 5,762 5, rubber chicken dinners. I've done my penance for all of my sins in the past. Uh, so I kind of avoid them. But this tonight, I have to tell you, is one of the most remarkable dinners I've ever been to. It really... You guys are actually having a good time. I mean, this is amazing. Eric, what a wonderful job you did. I really, I really appreciate you putting this together. And uh, let me just give you a bit of advice. Uh, fame is fleeting. People for years have come up to me and they'd said, I understand Eric Metaxas used to work for you. And I would say, yeah, yeah, he did some research and writing. And now I run up to people and say, have you read this book, Bonhoeffer? Eric Metaxas used to work for me. So just, just remember you go up the ladder, you go down the ladder. I am really, I am so proud of Eric. And uh, I am just, I read the book and was jumping for joy because so many parallels in my life and Bonhoeffer's life or so many parallels I had of experiences with similar. As a matter of fact, when I went to prison, uh, which I love to talk about, by the way, uh, because we have such a big job to do to fix the prison system. But uh, when I went to prison, I read letters and papers from prison, which were a collection of letters that Bonhoeffer had written, and actually it formed my own discipline for how I would survive in prison. So I, I've been a Bonhoeffer fan from the beginning, Cost of Discipleship, one of my favorite books, and I've read everything I'd got my hands on about Bonhoeffer, and clearly the definitive work has been done in what is one of the great biographies I've ever read by Eric. So I just want you to know, Mr. and Mrs. Metaxas, how proud I am of Eric. I do want to tell you, fame is fleeting, and it'll go very fast. I had a woman come up to me on the airplane a couple of weeks ago. Mr. Colson, my son is reading one of your books. Would you mind signing this little card so we can put it in the book? I said, yes, I've written 28 books. Which one of my books is he reading? She said, oh, no, no, it's not one of your books. You're in his history book. Ugh, that hurts. I want to reinforce an introduction that Eric uh, kindly made tonight about Timothy George. Timothy, I think, is one of the great evangelical scholars in the world and a wonderful friend of mine and is now working with me side by side in the Colson Center in addition to being dean of the Beeson Divinity School. And uh, he's right about that. The, when I first uh, sensed about a year and a half ago that we were going to be entering some really tough times as believers in our society, I read the Bar Brahman Declaration, got it out and dusted it off. 
Bonhoeffer and Barth, Niemöller and others had written bravely and courageously in 1934. I walked to a prison fellowship board meeting. Timothy was sitting there, and I said, Timothy, how long since you've read the Berman Declaration? I think maybe it's kind of timely right now. And he reached into his briefcase. We were there for a board meeting and pulled out 20 copies of the Berman Declaration. He said, I just so happen to have these that I want to hand out to the other board members. I knew right then what God was telling us to do. We got in touch with Robbie George, and now... Half a million Americans have signed it, including half the Catholic bishops in America, most of the evangelical leaders, the Patriarch of the Eastern Orthodox Church. All of this started, by the way, at, at uh, Mano Campouris's uh, behest when he invited a group of leaders to New York just a little over a year ago. So we thank you for that, Mano. And I'd like you to greet Timothy personally. Timothy, stand up so they can see you. You also saw that trailer of the ethics film, <clears throat> and I am going to be talking on the subject of ethics tonight, and I'll put a little bit of meat on the bones, the raw bones that you saw here, uh, which is an out outline, basically, what you saw as a trailer of a six-part, 30-minute teaching series, which we have done in cons consultation with some business school deans and uh, some other academics who tell us that we may be going to be able to present something on the campuses, several deans have said they want to teach it in business schools, so when we roll it out in February, we're looking for it to have a, we, it, it could be a game changer in American life, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. But one of the characters, this is like having the original cast here tonight, one of the characters you saw give a very trenchant and powerful comment in that film, one of the panelists, this was done at Princeton with a classroom, uh, 40 students chosen at random, no questions were planted, it was very spontaneous. But one of the uh, very good comments you saw earlier was by a professor from Connecticut by the name of Glenn Sunshine, and I met Glenn and his wife here tonight, so I know they're here. Glenn, stand up so they can come and get your autograph after. There you go, Glenn Sunshine. Well, I'm going to begin, the, I'm going to begin this talk this evening in a kind of an unusual way. I am going to quote, of all things, the New York Times. I do read it every day. I have to because that's where I get so many good breakpoints from. The absurd things that the Times will occasionally say I can turn into a radio broadcast. But uh, I read it in the morning through clenched teeth. Uh, but every now and then there's something really important. And one of those times was a couple of months ago when Thomas Friedman, who's an excellent writer, and I really enjoy his columns actually, uh, Thomas Friedman wrote a piece about why America is no longer number one in the world. Maybe you saw it. America, according to a Newsweek poll, which always was number one, is now number 11. And Friedman gave the best answer to why that is so, and really catches it in a short, succinct way. He talks about everything has become in a flat world. This is his thesis in his great selling book on that subject. Everything in a flat world now is accessible to everybody. So there's nothing particularly unique about one country over another, and that's his basic thesis, which he's been writing about for years. But in answering the question of why America is now number 11 instead of number one, here was his concluding paragraph, and he asked by, who's going to tell the people the truth? China and India have been catching up to America, not only via cheap labor and currencies, they are catching up they are catching us because they now have free markets like we do, <clears throat> education like we do, access to capital and technology like we do, but more importantly, values like our greatest generation had. 
That is a willingness to postpone gratification, invest for the future, work harder than the next guy, and hold the kids to the highest expectations. In a flat world where everyone has access to everything, values matter more than ever. Right now, Hindus and Confucianists have more Protestant ethics than we do, and as long as that is the case, we will be number 11. This is the fault line running through American culture today. This is the collapse of the moral center. This is the answer to the question, can you have freedom without virtue? What you're seeing as a result of 2008 is the loss of freedom. Why? Because we've lost virtue. Virtue is essential to the preservation of a free society. Michael Novak's wonderful little example about the three-legged stool on which Western liberal democracy sits, political freedom, economic freedom, moral restraint. Take away moral restraint and two-legged stools fall over. And that's exactly what happened in 2008. It's the case study that we start this series with. What you saw in 2008 was a collapse of ethics at four places. You saw the Congress take to spending and authorizing and appropriating billions of dollars to go into a housing market far beyond what people had the capacity to repay, and they knew it. But they pumped those funds into Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac because Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, quasi-public-private corporations, were able to give them campaign contributions. And we've gotten so immune to scandals, we've gotten so used to uh, the, the standards we live by today that nobody really saw that as the great, great ethical failure it was on the part of Congress. Well, then it got to Wall Street. All this money came pouring out into the mortgage markets, and Wall Street is clever. That's why they get rich. They're very clever, very smart. They created these instruments, and then they created credit default swaps and another lot of other exotic things, so you could, you could bet on the same transaction a thousand times. That's called leverage. But what they did was to take all these mortgages, many of which were given to people who couldn't pay them back, bundle them all together, sell them in groups to German banks and Swiss hedge funds, who never realized what they were getting because the rating agencies did not honestly rate them. And then at the lending level, what happened? Do you remember this? You, you, you must all remember this. You would have to. Over the last in the five years before 2008, the run-up to 2008, every single lender mortgage broker in America was sending out letters saying, wouldn't you like to borrow more money? If you went in and asked for $250,000 for a house, they'd say, oh, please take a half a million. They wanted to get the money out there. Why? Because they could sell that instrument, and the person making the loan was no longer responsible for collecting it invitation to make money that you knew couldn't be repaid. Absolutely tailor-made. And the public bought it. A public steeped in the Protestant work ethic which believed in deferred gratification as a virtue. When in debt to the tune of $3,000 per family, bought homes they couldn't possibly afford because they were told it didn't matter because when the loans came due, they could sell the house at a profit, so who cares? They didn't have anything to lose. We abandoned any sense of personal responsibility for our debts and our obligations. The result is an economic collapse which has led to the rise of government power in unprecedented in American history. We've added more people to the government payroll in the last 18 months than we added in the whole Depression. It's amazing. That's not rocket science. 
take away morality from the center of a culture and order has to replace it and order comes from government. If people can't govern themselves, self-government won't work. That's precisely what we see as a consequence of 2008. It's been a long time coming. Back in, 19, in the late, late 1880s, a friend of mine by the name of John Shad, that name, if some of you are on Wall Street, will ring a bell because he was a big-time guy on Wall Street and went into the SEC. And John was a friend of mine, and John gave $5 million to Harvard Business School to teach ethics. And I called him up on the phone one day, and I said, you're wasting your money. Harvard is philosophically committed to relativism, that there is no truth. And ethics, what is ethics? Ethics is the way things ought to be. Ought to be means there's an absolute standard that it's going to be met. But if there's relativism, if everybody's truth, one person's truth is as good as another person's truth, then how are you going to teach ethics? And John said, oh no, I've seen the curriculum. I said, John, send it to me. He sent it to me and it was pure, unadulterated pragmatism. Don't do the wrong thing because you'll get in the newspapers and that's bad for your business. That's not ethics. Be careful in your hiring practices because uh, sexual predatory practices can, uh, you can get in trouble with the law. And I have to tell you, ever since then, it's gotten worse. I look at all the stuff today being put out for ethics and compliance officers across America. It's got nothing to do with ethics, which is right and wrong. It has everything to do with don't get in trouble. Pragmatism. Only philosophical system ever developed in the United States and uh, at Harvard in the late 19th century. And the only one today that is in force. So anyway, I wrote some articles about it at the time. I said, oh, they're going to waste, John Chad's going to waste $5 million and Harvard can't teach ethics. And eventually I got a letter from my, some friends of mine on the Harvard Corporation saying, you're wrong about that and uh, we're going to invite you up to the Harvard Business School to give a distinguished lecture on ethics and why Harvard can't teach it. So I did. <laughs> got to Harvard, Aldridge Hall, big hall was filled. Uh, students and faculty lining up against the walls, overcapacity. I want to tell you, good folks, I worked for two weeks on that before I gave that lecture because I knew I'm going to go up against the best and the brightest. I knew they were going to come over the parapets. You know, you're in the round and they, they, they all can get at you equally easily. I figured they're going to come from all sides at once. And it was one of the biggest disappointments of my life because when they opened it up for questions, in 30 minutes, there wasn't one good question. These students were never grounded in moral philosophy. They didn't have any idea what I was talking about. And as a matter of fact, got near the end of the, the, lecture per, the uh, question period, and a student stood up in the back and he said, Mr. Colson, I've got one question for you. If you were, undergrad, if you were a, uh, at the Harvard Business School studying and you wanted to learn ethics, where would you go? What would you do? I said, I'd get on the MBTA, that's the subway in Boston. Now, this is to a Harvard crowd. You'd have to understand what I'm about to say would normally start a riot. I said, get on the MBTA and go over to Boston College and order a, audit a course by Dr. Peter Kreeft or Joseph Spinella. <laughs> Kid stands up and says, how do you spell Spinella? He's going to write it down. <laughs> I mean, normally you'd have had bricks thrown at you. And for the past 20 years, I've been giving similar lectures all over the United States Never on a college campus did I get good questions. I have to tell you, as a former Marine, I'm proud to say best questions I got with the 2nd Marine Division when General Jones gave mandatory attendance to all the Marine officers and non-coms in the 2nd Marine Division, and I got some really good questions. 
But on the campuses, you can't get it. Pope Benedict is right. We live with a dictatorship of relativism. And you can't teach ethics. So the question is, what do we do about it? I guess maybe the first question is, does it matter? My goodness. You heard Dr. Christopher Hook on this trailer saying, eugenics is back. He's the chief of medicine at Mayo Clinic. Great bioethicist. I don't have time today to elaborate on what eugenics is, but it started, it really started in America in the fashionable salons of Philadelphia and New York in the 20s. And Oliver Wendell Holmes was a, was a leading exponent. Margaret Sanger was a leading exponent. It was about race selection and weeding out the unfit. And in fashionable circles, we talked that way. We started it. And the German doctors picked it up and they put it into practice under Hitler. Eugenics is deciding there are some people who aren't worthy of life. Can you imagine that? We live in a culture which is formed largely by the most radical doctrine in the history of Western civilization. When the, when the Jews and the Christians invaded the Greco-Roman Empire, they brought with them a radical doctrine that all human beings are created in the image of God. The imago dei is in every single person. Can you imagine how that scandalized the Greeks, all of whom had their own slaves? Can you imagine how that scandalized the Romans who believed that women were actually men with defects? <laughs> no rights. And these people come in, and the first, first pastoral letter written by the church was to, was to Marcus Aurelius by Bishop Athenodorus, who denounced the practice of abortion and infanticide. Moral questions. And out of that consensus that human beings are created in the image of life has come an ethical system which respects the dignity of every single human being. And you can't have a good, wholesome, vibrant society if we are going to be deciding, however we decide to do it, who lives and who dies. What happens to freedom? Ethics is a very, very big question today. Not just in the business community, but in the law, in medicine, in how we order our common lives together, the root of politics. Well, what happens when private virtue fails? Public order collapses. The restoration of private virtue has got to be one of our highest priorities. Can it be done? Well, this series we did at Princeton, which was uh, financed by the Temple Foundation, and uh, very interesting because Britt Hume did a wonderful job throughout it, and uh, Ben Stein gave his usual colorful performances, uh, really done to professional standards. This, this deals with the cause of the crisis, and then it says, here's how you restore them. And let me just share this with you tonight, and then if you have the opportunity and can go through that film, you'll see this laid out for you. First of all, you have to start with a proposition, a proposition that was never in debate in Western civilization until it began to be in debate in the Enlightenment, and then now in the post-war era, what we call postmodernism, is debated endlessly. 
or it's not debated anymore. It's been decided that there is no such thing as truth. The question is, is there truth and is it knowable? Is there a moral truth? What converted C.S. Lewis was the realization that every society through history has had a moral code of some form or another. And when you look at them, they're strikingly similar. And C.S. Lewis thought to himself, here he was a professor of medieval literature, but he thought to himself, if that's really true, then there are universal truths and norms which are accessible by human reason. As believers, we say they're in Scripture. They're revealed to us in Scripture. But they're also accessible by human reason because it is true that certain people behave certain ways throughout history. And that has formed a body of what could be called natural law, which is what we teach in the ethics series. You'll hear people, when you get to that part of the script, you'll hear people arguing that the correspondence theory of truth, very simple. Truth is that which conforms to the way things are. If I start dropping that pen, constantly drop it, or that watch over and over and over the same time, I can draw certain assumptions from that. And the same thing happens with moral behavior, just exactly as it does with physical laws. It's possible, it's possible to study the world and see the way it ought to work. As a matter of fact, I have a lecture that I give one hour to my centurion's teaching group that says that if you look at how worldviews work out in practice, you can come to the conclusion which ones are rational and which ones are not. I think Dinesh has done something similar to this. The only one that's rational is the Christian worldview, but the fact is you can determine that there is truth by which ones conform to the way things really are. Second, and here's the much more difficult question, and I deal with this in the film with personal, bitter personal experience. Even if you know what is true, can you do it? Even if you know what is right, are you able to do it? Who made that lament very famous? Biblical scholars in the room? Romans 7. Paul. That which I want to do, I do not do. That which I do not want to do, I do. What is it that makes me sin? Is it, the, is it the sin within me? May it never be so. Is it the law that makes me do it? May it never be so. Why do people know what is right and do what is wrong? C.S. Lewis explains that by saying that the mind knows what is right, but the stomach has a passion. And he draws the moral teaching in a wonderful essay called Men Without Chests. I've tried to use that in places where they're sensitive about gender uses, and I, I haven't been able to make that any other way than men without chests. I, I suppose I could try harder. It's a classic essay. If you don't read anything else by C.S. Lewis, read that. What he basically said is, why is it we mock honor and find traitors in our midst? Why is it that we bid the geldings to multiply? We remove the organ, he says, in a ghastly simplicity, and then expect the function. And the organ he's talking about is the will, which he says is likened to the chest. The head knows what is right. The stomach is an uncontrollable passion. It's the will, the trained habits and dispositions, that prevents the stomach from doing what the stomach wants to do when the head knows better cultivation of virtue, the primary job of character development, the primary task of conscience. How do you raise young 
all of you are mothers and fathers here will know that all young little babies, the cutest things in the world, are basically barbarians. <laughs> I mean, they're born that way. They'll gouge your eyes out if they can. The whole process of civilizing a society is to teach manners and habits and dispositions to kids as they're growing up. Why is the crime rate, you heard me ask, why has the crime rate gone up from 239,000 people when I got out of prison to 2.3 million today? Sociologists in the 19th century all told us it was because of environment and poverty and deprivation. Nah. Two Jewish psychiatrists, one of whom we use on the film, Stanley Seminow, did a study in the mid-90s, uh, mid-70s rather, and they found that crime is caused, and I had to start discovering this because when I was working in the prisons, I wanted to know what was causing it. Simon and Yokelson did this 17-year longitudinal study at St. Elizabeth. They said it is caused by, by individuals making wrong moral choices, and the answer to crime was the conversion of the wrongdoer to a more responsible lifestyle. Any of you are believers, that will sound very much like a conversion. Then there was a study done in Harvard in 1986 by Professors Wilson and Hernstein who said the cause of crime is the lack of moral training during the morally formative years. Bingo. We're not training kids right and wrong during those morally formative years. They're getting no foundation in ethics or what is right or what ought to be, and they go out in the streets and associate with the gangs, and then we're surprised that we fill them up at the prisons at huge public expense. That's a collapse of ethics in a major, major way. So how do you do this? First of all, you've got to remind yourself that the conscience is not simply the way you feel. I think the most dangerous thing we could say in American culture today is, let your conscience be your guide. It's not. The word itself in Latin comes from conscienta, with knowledge. It has to be informed by objective truth. That's what you do with young people. You teach their conscience. You inform their conscience with what's right and wrong, so that the conscience becomes, as Cardinal Newman said, a stern monitor, not a permission slip. Then they learn character in community. Aristotle said it's never taught, it's learned. It's learned in a community, starting with a family, then into the little associations, the little platoons of society, as Burke put it. And you begin to train people, you begin to discipline. I went through training in the Marine Corps, and that man you saw on here, Donovan Campbell, is just out of three terms in, Iraq, in three tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, Marine Captain Princeton 01, Harvard Business School, where he went and got no ethics. And Donovan Campbell talks about Marine training, building character, what you do in boot camp. Anybody here has been in the military, you'll know this. First seven weeks in boot camp, you kick the stuffings out of people, get rid of everything they brought with them, all their bad habits, all their attitudes. The next eight weeks, you teach them that they can do anything now that they're a Marine as long as they play by the rules. That's a nice little metaphor for character development. Character development is teaching people what they can't do themselves, but what they should do when they play by the rules of the association they're part of. It's not hard. We do it in prisons that we run in America. We run eight prisons in the United States where we take people in for 18 months and we see them absolutely transformed in that experience. Those are Christian, those are Christian institutions that we're running in prison fellowship, but the principle applies that when people are in community, when they're in accountability, when they are taught what is wrong about their prior behavior and how they can reform that and then how they can live and have peer support and mentors when they get up, it works. We've cut recidivism from 60% nationally to 8% in these units. Character can be learned and lived. <laughs> and 
This is a matter of life and death. Yes, eugenics is back. But I think the entire American political system is tottering. I don't think it can survive without a moral base. I like what Will and Ariel Durant wrote in, as they finished their enormous work on history of the Western civilization. There's never been a case, they wrote, where a society has been able to survive without a strong moral code. Nor has there ever been a society where that moral code was not informed by religious truth. It may be politically incorrect to say it, but if we aren't willing to say there are certain truths we're going to live by, then somebody else is going to decide what those truths are for us. If self-government has any chance of surviving, it has to be only if we're able to cultivate virtue and virtuous living among the people. Michael Novak again says, if you have a virtuous society where people can govern themselves, you have 300 million policemen. If you don't, you can't hire enough policemen. My appeal to you tonight would be very simple. It's time that we re-educate ourselves on the classic truths that, of all people, a liberal, secular Jew by Thomas Friedman has figured out we have abandoned the historic ethics by which we order our lives together. And now we're amazed that there's a collapse in our lives. And we're amazed that other nations which are embracing our ethics are now passing us. Lots of crises in American life today, lots of crises in the world today. It's always been that way from the beginning of history, always will be that way. But this is one of them that intelligent men and women like those of you who assemble in this room, who care deeply about your society, your city, your community, your nation, if you care about these things, then you've got to care about the restoration of some sense of right and wrong and the renewal of some ethical understanding by which we all order our lives together. God bless you. Thank you, Chuck. You can stay here. Thank you so much, Chuck. What a privilege to have you with us and to hear from you. Um, it is our tradition at Socrates in the City, after the speaker speaks, uh, to have uh, some Q&A. There's so many of us here today, I thought we would limit the questions to celebrities. <clears throat> <laughs> Do you know what a celebrity is? A celebrity is somebody who is famous for being famous. Right. So then we have no celebrities here. It's an empty term. We have people of substance uh, who are well-known. Uh, <laughs> we do. We Much do. better. Uh, although Schwarzenegger, he was going to show up. So, um, Is Cher here? The program says uh, she's not yet confirmed, but uh, her publicist really tried hard. Are you here, Cher? <laughs> I thought so. BJ, we know about you, so take it easy. That's okay, BJ. You're going to watch that video on ethics. We'll straighten you right out. 
Um, I think uh, the first question we know, I know that Dinesh D'Souza is going to ask a question. Dinesh, will you ask a question? Dinesh D'Souza, have I caught you unawares? D Dinesh D'Souza, <laughs> first of all, is in the building. Last night was officially installed as the new and the fifth president of King's College. It was an extraordinary evening. Many of you... Amen. It was an extraordinary evening. Many of you um, were there. I know I was there. Um, uh, but uh, why don't, uh, Dinesh, if you have a question, we'd love uh, for you to ask it. Can I come there? I'll come there with the microphone so you don't have to. I got mixed up. I read about this Q&A of celebrities, and I thought I was going to do the asking of a panel of celebrities. No. Sorry. Sorry, Chuck. Here I am still no, on the you're A. Dinesh is Q. So here's, here's Dinesh. The question is about relativism. Um, usually I find when someone professes relativism, they're not really being sincere about it. There are really no true relativists. Usually when someone advocates relativism, they are being relativist about your morality while being absolutist about their own. Uh, this is easily verified by finding the things that they care about and then when you relativize those, they become very indignant. So my question is, is anyone really a relativist? And if not, what exactly are you trying to fight here? Well, that's exactly, that's a very, very good question. Did you all hear that? Is, is there such a thing as a consistent relativist? Uh, I hope you'll all watch this six-part series. I hope you'll use your own spheres of influence to get it promoted and uh, spread all around the country because uh, the, the, the law school, the business school academics who have seen it, seen it say it really is a game changer if we could get it shown on campuses. It exposes the very thing that Dinesh just very uh, uh, wisely pointed out. There is no such thing as a relativist. Relativism is a means to power, which is exactly why Pope Benedict, who's a brilliant scholar, says the dictatorship of relativism is what we live with. If you can't form any conclusion about what is true, then you have to go by the value judgment of the person who says there is no truth. <laughs> and if somebody says there is no truth, there's no absolute truth, ask them, is that an absolute statement? It's, it's self-refuting. And they always will find that the, 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 the relativist will say something self-refuting. And they're very easy to put down once you're, if you, if you tune yourself to think about this, it's very easy to put them down by simply asking them the next series of questions that that leads to. And they, and they will always come back to their position being true, even to the extreme of there are no truths. But uh, it has gripped us I don't know if you, if you folks haven't encountered this, it is widespread on college campuses. Britt Hume, who had, had no preparation for this at all, he just arrived at Princeton, and I said, Britt, here's what we, I'd, I'd sent him the script, and I said, you just start asking the questions. He was the first one who got this. He said, is it possible to be a consistent relativist? And of course it isn't. Uh, you couldn't live in a relativistic world. If everybody made up their own values, 
you couldn't, what would you do, bar your windows at night and, and never invite your neighbors in? I mean, if you can't trust people, and you can't. Relativism is political correctness run amok, but it absolutely owns the academy, owns it. We're in the grip of it. And I'm in the grip of it right now because, uh, and so is Timothy, because uh, Apple has taken down our app on the Manhattan Declaration because they had complaints that we were homophobic, which is nothing in it. If you read it, this absolutely goes out of its way not to be. But ours now has to come down, and it's just a matter of time before there are enough petitions that all the Christian ones will come down. Why? Because as the judge in California ruled in Schwarzenegger versus Perry, the Proposition 8 case, which will be at the Ninth Circuit with oral hearings beginning next week, religious convictions that believe that homosexual behavior is wrong are inherently bigoted. That's a truth claim which I wish to make. And in a relativistic environment, I'm not allowed to make it. That's exactly how you lose freedom with it. But the point, the, the question is a very good question. By the way, if you're getting your dessert and you have it and I'm talking, look at it while you're eating, otherwise you'll put your fork in your cheek. And I want you to know I'm looking at that dessert from up here, and I will be glad to offer a mass dispensation before we're over. Uh, you can, your sins can be forgiven. Uh, a great question, Dinesh. Thank you. Thank you, Dinesh. Thank you, Chuck. Uh, we move on to a blonde female celebrity. Over here, we have uh, Rita Cosby, Emmy Award-winning uh, TV host, uh, star, best-selling author. Rita... Do you have a question for Chuck Colson? I um, do. Chuck, first of all, my dad was a prisoner of war, saved by American troops. So God bless you and the troops. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you did. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, I, as a journalist, Fox News for 10 years, worked with many of your dear friends, Britt and Roger Ailes. Um, I understand about ethics, and I know that you don't want to talk about Watergate or prison. So I'd like to ask you about both. Good. <laughs> Um, what were the most difficult times for you? And also, I want to ask you about prison fellowship. What was the most moving story of all these cases? You work so closely with the inmates. Um, what was the most trying time for you? I think your life is extremely courageous. Well, uh, would you repeat that last question? Yes, yeah. What was the most difficult time for you personally during Watergate and also during prison? And then also separately in prison fellowship? Chuck, too. What, you've, you've met so many of the inmates. What was the most moving story that's affected you? Thank you, Rita. You have asked me questions about the work in the prisons when you were on that beat, I guess, for a while. Uh, and uh, the most difficult experience about Watergate for me was that I was, a, as a kid, I grew up, nobody in my family had gone to college. My father was going to law school nights. And I wanted to get a degree, and I wanted to... I wanted to make something of my life because I was very idealistic. That's why I joined the Marines when the Korean War was going on. I wanted to be wherever the fighting is, wherever I can defend my country. And uh, went into politics because I wanted, really wanted to change the world. All of a sudden, my whole world collapses and I end up in prison. And the most difficult thing for me was the, I didn't lose my right to practice law. I could make money in a number of ways. I wasn't worried about that. I was worried about I'd never make a difference again. 
That's simply under, underestimating the sovereignty of God because he took the biggest defeat in my life and used it around for the greatest blessing. And he'll do that. I've seen him do it over and over again. If you're strong in your Christian faith, you're going to realize that adversity you should welcome, as the Apostle James wrote in his letter, as your brother, because God will use adversity for his greatest purposes. But that was the toughest moment. And, and part and parcel of that was I was very proud. And uh, I think the hardest day of my life was to walk into the courtroom, very proud and very proud of being an American and serving my country, and to hear the judge read, hear the prosecutor read, or the clerk read, actually, the United States of America versus Charles Colson. That was really tough, big time tough. In prison, the hardest thing for me was uh, not, I could get used to the uh, conditions. Uh, I'd, I'd lived in all kinds of environments in my life, so that wasn't a problem. And I, I got along great with the guys. Uh, in fact, I was a hero in the prison I was in because there were a lot of mafia people in my prison. And the one thing about me, I had never testified against Richard Nixon. All the other Watergate defendants, they were snitches. And they lived miserable lives. And I had the original cast of the movie Godfather one night in my room as we were watching it on TV. And they loved me, so I got along fine in prison. The tough thing was my father died while I was in prison. He was the closest person to me, except for my wife. And... Uh, then I had a son get in trouble, a uh, small minor offense in college. Uh, and then the other guys in the Watergate were sentenced by Judge Sirico, and I was sentenced by another judge, Gazelle, and uh, they all got released and I didn't. And what happened to me, I was asked about this at the King's College today, what happened after that is a man by the name of Al Kui, who was a governor of Minnesota, but back in those days had been 25 years in the Congress, one of the most honorable, decent men I've ever known in my life. He was part of a prayer group that welcomed me when I became converted to Christ and welcomed me in and uh, called me one day at the prison. Congressmen can get their calls through in the prison. Uh, and said, Chuck, our prayer group has been meeting. I'm going down to see Jerry Ford tomorrow, who was on president. I'm going to ask him if I can serve the rest of your prison sentence so you can be home and be with your family. I went to my bunk that night and knelt down, and I thank God I was in prison because I knew the reality of Christ in a way that I've never doubted from that day to this. So uh, that was the toughest moment, but both of those tough moments turned out to be great moments. Over the years in prison fellowship, I have seen, I've been in well over a thousand prisons in 41 countries. I've been in Perm Camp 35 when it was controlled by the Soviets. I've seen terrible, terrible deprivation. Uh, I've seen brutality and violence that you can't imagine. And yet I've also seen, as you often do in the darkest places in life, the greatest acts of nobility and faith that I've seen anywhere. I have, thanks to the Templeton Foundation, preached in Buckingham Palace, and all the big churches around that world and uh, nowhere I'd rather preach than in a prison where men are beaten down or women are beaten down. All the pretenses of life are stripped away and they understand the reality of Christ. And so I've had some joyous experiences in those dark holes in the prisons and have seen how Christ really does offer a redemption which is real and genuine and lasts. And uh, I see it all the time. I've 
I've been very blessed in that respect. Thank you, Chuck, and thank you, Rita. Um, uh, I think we have to go back to a male brunette celebrity. Is there a male? Yes, I see my friend <laughs> Rich Lowry. Uh, Rich Lowry, uh, you may have seen him on TV, or you may have read his spectacular magazine. It's called National Review. Uh, Rich is here with us, has come to many Socrates events. Rich, I think you may have a, a question for Chuck. Would you ask it with this microphone? Thank you, Eric. Mr. Colson, thanks so much for your service to our country, and thank you for your you, wonderful presentation, despite the citation of Thomas Friedman, which uh, I'm willing to overlook. <laughs> um, you know, I think I'm wondering how would you would react to some of our more zealous free market friends who might listen to what you said tonight and say, yes, the financial crisis was a big problem, but you know some incentives were misaligned. There were foolish government policies but speculative manias have been part of capitalism since time immemorial. And what capitalism is about fundamentally is people trying to rationally calculate their interest. Sometimes they're right and they make lots of money. Sometimes they're wrong and they should go bust. And that's the end of the story. Well, I think Ayn Rand was one of the worst influences on American life and uh, continues to be. Uh, I don't think there is any such thing as a, any system of life or of work or of economics that does not be, that's not balanced. Our founders, founding fathers understood something, so did the Christian tradition, and that is that we had something called the rule of law and the division of powers that came out of the Reformation in particular. Uh, if you give absolute power to anyone in a fallen world, which we Christians believe we are in a fallen world, uh, the result of original sin, uh, they're going to abuse it. I'd go back to Adam Smith. Adam Smith said when you get two businessmen together, alone, room, quietly, what they do is figure out how to beat the system. That's human nature. Only a utopian, not someone certainly who believes in fallen human nature, only a utopian would believe that you could have an unmonitored, unregulated, unrestrained uh, economic system. Capitalism, like any other ism, when you, hear, when you see the ISM, watch it carefully, because now you've taken a good idea and turned it into a methodology or a way of life or an ideology, like any other ism, needs restraints. And we've seen, clearly, government, government initiated this crisis. Government initiated the crisis of 2008, way back 15 years ago it started. Uh, but Wall Street was certainly complicit in it. And I talked to enough people who are, who are in very, very senior positions on Wall Street who say, of course we did. You know, we had a chance to do this, we did it. Uh, if people are honest with themselves, they will, they will tell you it can't work. It, it's, it's Novak's thesis. If we're, if we're capable of self, only if we're capable of self-government will self-government work. And so I disagree completely with the all holds off, do anything you want, just let the free market go its way. It won't, it won't go, it'll, it'll go its way, which is the way all human institutions do in a fallen world, and, and did. 
Thank you, Rich, and thank you, Chuck. I don't know if uh, Timothy George has a question. Timothy George, do you have a question? All right, please. Chuck, I work with you in Prison Fellowship, which is now chartered in 120 countries around the world, and the issues you're talking about aren't unique to our country, of course. They're global. Uh, much of the criticism you receive, particularly for the stands you've taken tonight and elsewhere, come not from the secular world, uh, but from within our own Christian fellowship, uh, particularly from others who think that maybe it's time for Christians to take a sabbatical from speaking out on public policy issues, engaging the culture on issues of ethics and so forth. Uh, say a little bit about that opposition and how you deal with it and what kind of word would you say to some of our own friends and brothers and sisters who take that line. Well, that's a, that's a wonderful question because most of the difficulties I have had have been with Christians. I started something in 1992 of which Timothy and I are very active members today. Richard Newhouse, Father Richard Newhouse here in New York and I started something called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. And I thought it was time because we were together out in the abortion clinics, out on the, out, out on the picketing, and uh, we have common worldview, I thought it was time that the, the church got together and took a, a, a united stand. I had no idea how deep those feelings of resentment have been for several hundred years. Uh, we lost one million dollars in gifts to Prison Fellowship the year that was announced uh, because people wouldn't give to me because I was consorting with Catholics. Uh, Fortunately, today, we've gotten over that. I think we're, we're getting a little more sophisticated. We realize we have to work together. We've, and the Manhattan Declaration is a great example of that. Although, as Timothy and I discovered to our dismay, the Manhattan Declaration, which is all rooted in Scripture, that's all it is. It's, it, it uses Scripture for its, its foundation for everything we talk about. The common Scripture, the same Scripture that Orthodox Catholics and Evangelicals use, there were some evangelical leaders who wouldn't sign it because it was compromising the gospel by making joint statements with, Christ with Catholics. So that's tragic because it's the first time in a long time that Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and evangelicals have worked together. That's been a serious problem, just trying to, trying to build unity in the faith, not compromising essentials. Unity in service of the truth and in pursuit of the truth and agreeing where we can agree and respectfully disagreeing where we can't agree but at least trying to work together. We've got to make a common witness. This is an amazing country, and it's amazing problems around the world that are similar. Amazing country. Peter Berger used to say about America that we are a, uh, that, let's see, he said India is the most religious country in the world. Sweden is the most irreligious. America is a nation of Indians ruled by Swedes. <laughs> and there's really a lot of truth in that. Majority of Americans believe what I think most of us in this room believe. But then we fight over each other. We fight with each other instead of joining forces, which we need to do, because otherwise we're controlled by the elites. The other point a number of you have asked me tonight, it's interesting. Um, I was criticized by James Davidson Hunter, for whom I've had great respect. He's a great scholar at the University of Virginia, and I've always applauded his work. And, and even arranged a, a gift for his ministry one time because I was so impressed with what he was doing. For some reason, he felt like I was making a mistake because I had been preaching for 25 years that uh, much like Wilberforce and Wesley 
We needed a movement of God's people who are energized, who understand that Christianity is not just a relationship, Jesus and me, but a way of seeing all of life. I love the words of Abraham Kuyper when he dedicated Free University in Amsterdam. There's not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence as to which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, mine. Christians believe in the arts and belong in the arts and in music and politics and every area of life. And so it's reductionism. As Kimon and I were talking about at dinner when we take Christianity down just to a relationship with us. Christians belong in every walk of life. And I believe a movement of, of uh, educated, discipled Christians can make a profound change in our society and historically have. That's how the church began in the early centuries. And that's what we've got to get back to today. Well, some people believe you can only change a society by the elite, and James Davidson Arner is one of those. Uh, he very easily could have written a book saying, let's do the mass people as well and the elites, but he chose not to. He, he did a book in which he used me as the antagonist, of the bad guy who believes you can go after the elite, and everybody knows only flat earthers believe that, as he said. Uh, and it wasn't very charitable for one Christian to do this to another, but it's okay. The debate's out there. Should we take a vacation from politics and then just be, as he puts it, a faithful presence wherever we are in the world? That's the quickest formula for the marginalization of Christianity and the loss of the fundamental values out of which public ethics can be uh, developed. I think that would be the worst possible advice. And I know there's some in this room who are good friends of mine who disagree with me, but I feel absolutely passionately that every Christian has to understand their Christianity not just as their salvation, important as that is. And I'll never forget the night when I cried out to Christ and he saved me and I knew I was saved. I knew my sins were forgiven. That was the greatest feeling I've ever had in my life. So I'll never forget that. But that's only what opens the door to a relationship now in which I see all of the world under the control of Christ and I see his Bible speaking, his word speaking to every area of life. And we mustn't, mustn't, mustn't withdraw from that. We did in the early, early part of the 20th century, evangelicals did, the fundamentalist movement, and lost all the mainstream institutions. I want to see us work hard, day and night, which is what Socrates in the City is one of those ways of doing, to win those back and to bring Christian influence back into the mainstream of life. Thank you, Chuck. We have a... Thank you, Chuck. We have one... We have time for one quick final question from the Columbia rugby team. Uh, and we're going to allow the All-American, Derek Lipscomb, to ask that question. Derek, what's your question? No pressure. <laughs> Um, Mr. Colson, you once wrote that you were valuable to the president because you were ruthless in getting things done. Um, given that view, like, what would be your what would be your opinion about like WikiLeaks or uh, like your your stance on like freedom of speech in today's democracies? Well, it, you, it would take a rugby player to know somebody who is ruthless at getting things done. Uh, that's a tough sport you play, and. Uh, I admire your toughness in doing it. Um, yeah, that's what I said back in those days, and I think that was typical of a guy in his late 30s who had had an uh, absolutely astronomical rise to influence and power, 
uh, at much too early an age, and I wasn't ready for it. And I admit on this film that there were times when I should have told Nixon he was doing the wrong thing, and I didn't. Uh, you rationalize it. Human beings have the infinite capacity for self-rationalization. I always did what I thought was right and ended up going to prison. So, and I had a pretty puritanical training, really. But I was also convinced I was right, and I was, Nixon used to say, I like Colson because he'll walk through a door without opening it. Uh, and I, I was a guy that got things done. I was known as, somebody earlier said I was known as the hatchet man. I guess Eric did. I'll have to tell you a little story about that. When my first book came out, Born Again, it said the story of the White House hatchet man because the Wall Street Journal had done a front page profile of me in 1971 on my 40th birthday and said, Chuck Colson, Nixon's hatchet man. He does all the tough jobs. I never gave an interview to the press when I was in the White House. So it was all made up from what people had told him. But that name stuck. Well, when it was on the cover of the book, I went to Germany. The book was translated in German, sold hundreds of thousands of copies in Germany. And I found out every crowd I would go to, they'd introduce me, and they'd show the cover of the book, and they'd read it. And then the crowd would be very subdued. I couldn't figure it out until I got the translation in German of Hatchet Man was Hangman. So I'm no longer a hangman. I've got a deep, passionate belief in human freedom and the freedom of speech. Uh, right now, a particular passionate uh, commitment to the freedom of speech, thanks to the Apple Company. God bless you. Thank you, Chuck Colson. Thank you, Chuck. Oh, my goodness, my goodness. Uh, it's getting late. Uh, we had to um, cut off the last question. It was the biggest celebrity of all, Santa Claus. Yeah, Santa had a question. Maybe I can ask the question of Chuck. You don't have to answer it, uh, Chuck. I think maybe it's a rhetorical question. But uh, Santa says that uh, he's wanted to ask you this for 40 years. Mr. Colson, why were Mrs. Claus and I on Nixon's enemies list? I don't think it would be appropriate uh, for him to answer that question. The hour is late, and we need to move on. I'm sure you deserve to be on there, okay? I'm sorry. Um, thank you, Chuck, so much. Thanks to all of you uh, for being a part of this wonderful evening. Uh, a few uh, closing comments. By the way, everyone uh, at each table gets a... Um, well, there's, there's a gift, I guess. And so we're going to have a raffle. Can we do that now? Are we ready for the raffle? Or should I uh, stretch? Uh, I guess we're not ready for the raffle. Okay, well, we'll get to the raffle in a, in a minute. Just a few quick announcements before we, uh, before we end the evening. Um, the, um, we have a book and CD table. Again, it's a big part of what we are about at Socrates and City. It's not just about a talk, because you can't change the world in 40 minutes, but it can begin a journey. And we want to encourage you uh, to please avail yourself of the CDs and now DVDs that we have available of our previous speakers, uh, and also of the books. There are a number of uh, Chuck Colson's books uh, out here, anybody who got the gift basket patrons, you got two of, uh, or one or two of Chuck's books in there, but I want to encourage you to read them. I can tell you bluntly, Chuck Colson's books changed my life. Uh, when I became uh, serious about my faith uh, after Yale, and it would 
sadly have to be after Yale that one becomes serious about one's faith. I began uh, discovering Chuck's books. I read them, devoured them, and then followed the footnotes and the bibliography to other books. Uh, These are treasures, uh, so I want to recommend them uh, to you. Uh, We also have my highly vaunted biography of Bonhoeffer back here. Uh, (laughs) But I I know you've all read it by now, of course. we, uh, we will have a CD of tonight's talk available in 15 minutes. So you'll never be able to get out of this room that quickly. So you might as well pick up a talk and give it to somebody. You can also pay and leave your address if you're in a hurry. We'd love to get that to you. Um, I want to give a special uh, thanks tonight to all of the volunteers who helped make this possible, most of them from King's College. Thank you, volunteers. Uh, I also earlier neglected to thank my wife for making much of this possible. And my wife is so wonderful that she's not the one who reminded me to thank her. Thank you, Suzanne. Uh, I want to remind you again, uh, Socrates in the City webpage, we have this uh, on the right-hand side, a button where you can share. If there's anything you'd like to say, we really want to hear from you. We should have done that 10 years ago and capture some of the wonderful uh, things we've heard. Uh, I want to say before we close, tonight, you probably didn't know this, but tonight uh, isn't just the 10th anniversary of Socrates in the City. It's also a fundraiser. Yes. <laughs> You haven't left yet, and I just used the word fundraiser. Lock the doors, please. Elves, lock the doors. Um, On your tables, there are some forms, uh, some forms, some things, uh, some envelopes uh, that suggest how you might give uh, to Socrates in the city. The forms don't ask whether you'd like to give, but, but how. Very important distinction. Not whether, but how. Uh, and so we want to encourage you, uh, if, uh, if you've already given, then please give more. Um, but if you haven't given, and if you're someone who can give, uh, we really do depend on the kindness of friends and strangers. We really do. Uh, we can't do this easily. This is a beautiful room. Uh, it wasn't free. These beautiful programs we're 42 bucks a piece. He really ripped me off with the programs. Unbelievable. I don't know how that's possible. Uh, but uh, we've got to pay for them. Otherwise, we will get sued, and we need you to help us. But uh, it really is expensive to, to do these events. Th- this is not self-funding. When you come to a regular event, you pay $35. If you think that covers the evening, trust me, that's about a third of our actual cost. These have to be subsidized by the kindness of our friends. So if it's possible for you to help us, we really do need your help. I think what we're doing is something that is fundamentally and profoundly worthy. And if you care about what's happening in culture, then you must care about what's happening in New York City, which is, for good or for ill, the center of culture in America. And what we do here matters. Uh, So I say that to you. This is not a vanity project. Uh, This is about doing something important. If you've come and if you've enjoyed it, uh, I do want to encourage you to take that card and please think about uh, giving uh, as as you feel led in the cliche that we use.